Welcome to the pod, everyone. A shout out to SGS. Hey, Rusty, why are we uh, partnering with SGS? Uh, uh, some, some, some good people there. Pretty excited about their sports coaching courses and sports courses. Keen to make them industry ready so when people leave, they're able to go and transfer it to any kind of industries, coaching, teaching, being an analyst, business, whatever it might be. So I think, uh, yeah, I think it's pretty exciting times, really. So what's so special about their degree courses that others won't be doing? I think it'll be lots of uh, real good partnerships, uh, opportunities for people to, to get into different contexts and learn and practice. It'll be feel very applied. People will be stretched and supported and will leave you know, ready to just go and thrive in the uh, big old world out there. SGS College is the home of Bristol's higher education sports programmes. The programmes are designed to develop unique, innovative and creative sports practitioners ready for industry. Do you want to be a coach or teacher of the future? Start your journey here at SGS College and become more than just a graduate. Visit sgscol.ac.uk. Cool. To so, live out. on the pod, live from Japan, uh, Eddie Jones, how you doing, mate? You are right. Oh, yeah, surviving, mate. Uh, you know, it's a bit of a test of discipline and a test of patience for everyone at the moment. Yeah, no, it's, uh, it's tough times. Um, and as a man who's, um, I'm, I'm pleased you're safe and well. Uh, and as a man who loves rugby, you must be the same as me. With uh, not a lot going on, you'll be uh, having to spend time with your wife and, and discover some new stuff. And uh, how's that treating you all right? Enjoying the rest? Yeah, well, I think it's a, it's a bit like any period in your time. It uh, reminds me when I was in between jobs in Japan. I went from Tokyo University to Sanctuary. This back in '96, and I had about three months of period to reflect on on coaching, and and I'm using this in the same way, looking to see right what's going to be important in rugby when we start again. How can I improve my coaching? This period, opportunity for any coach now to, to have a really good period of reflection, a good period to to work out where where you can take the game and where. Nice, yeah. I um, I was actually. Uh, I know you spent a bit of time recently with Danny Kerry because obviously he was looking ahead to the um, to the Olympics. It's now being postponed. I mean, how you, how are you reflecting on on the on the World Cup final? What's been your thoughts around that? Uh, yeah, look, it's one of those things you do if you, you, things you should have done, things you shouldn't have done. Yeah, when I look back, did we have the right preparation for the week? No, we didn't. Um, the game gives us the feedback on that. The game always gives you feedback on preparation. Uh, what did we miss doing? Um, but I think we probably didn't, again, in retrospect, this is, this is further retrospect. We probably didn't train with enough edge. Um, we felt the players had, had we had 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 three pretty hard weeks of, of preparation: Argentina, Australia, New Zealand, and we felt that uh, we just need to pull back a bit. We pulled back about ten percent, and maybe that hurt us a bit. Um, I thought mentally we understood the challenge of of coming down and getting up. I thought we handled that reasonably well, but again. Yeah, in, in retrospect, when we got on the field, we, we didn't have that. Um, and as I mentioned before, publicly, I thought I probably got selection wrong. Um, probably should have changed a, a few places in the forwards, brought a, a bit of freshness to the pack. 
the only game we actually picked the same team was from New Zealand to South Africa. Every other game in the World Cup, we changed slightly and uh, maybe got a bit seduced by success. So it's a, it's a pretty tough lesson, mate. Yeah, yeah. It was something I thought about in the week of the World Cup because it's quite rare for you to pick the same team twice on the bounce. Um, I was definitely thinking a, a, a little bit about that. What, uh, what are you, I mean, uh, and having seen you guys train and, and watch what training looks like, I mean, do you want to give people listening a bit of a, a flavour of what an Eddie Jones session looks like? I would see a lot of the kind of game testy type sessions. What would that look like? Yeah, look, we've uh, done a fair bit of work of that over the years through Japan and, and now. Uh, come up with what we call is a, a methodology of tactical periodization. You know, we borrowed it from football. Um, it's about understanding how you want to play, so your game model, and then applying that to the week. So the week becomes a whole implementation of your game model. The Monday trainings, um, the day I still think we don't have right. You know, it's still a very traditional organisational walkthrough type day and I'm, I'm not convinced that's the best learning uh, medium um, but at the moment we can't come up with something new which is something hopefully over the next couple of months uh, we'll work on. Tuesday we then run through, uh, we've changed that over the last period of time, it was very much structured play so 40% of our possession structured play and Tuesday was about structured play. I think the last time you came you saw that session. Um, which is quite ordered, um, but we've changed that a little bit to now include the key episodes of the game. And in most games now, the key episode of the game is is the kicking phase. Um, so it'll be about trying to take away what they want to do in their kicking phase and implement what we want to do in our kicking phase. So it's a little bit more unstructured, still very short, 20 minutes, three phases, full pace, little contact. Um, and then the Wednesday is is focusing more on the unstructured part of the game. So the session will go for about 55, 60 minutes, be about 80% unstructured, 20% structured, will vary numbers, time and space. We'll focus on implementing our game model um, as much as we can. And and recently it's been it's been uh, I think we've improved in that area. For instance, the Wales game, that whole session, and the players didn't enjoy it. Uh, our starting team only had 13 players the whole session, and the opposition had 16, which was, in fact, what happened at the end of the game. Or I shouldn't have said that, 13 versus 15. So, you mean 15. Uh, well, I get fined again. Um, 13 versus 15. Um, and it was to put the players under the sort of pressure we thought was going to come in the Wales game. And, and uh, it turned out like that. So we were reasonably happy with that. That preparation. I think again, what you're trying to do more and more is give the players. We want to give the players one once a week a game like a game like experience. So they've got to work things out on the field. They've got to they've got to understand is the momentum going with us? Is the momentum going away from us? And work out solutions on the field. Yeah, I agree. And, and probably um, watching the New Zealand game would have been the closest I've seen to one of those sessions. Uh, and, and I know you said there's little contact, but I definitely saw some people getting smashed in what was supposed to be not that contact session. So the intensity, the speed of it, the, 
the problem solving for the players would be would be pretty high. Why do you think the players didn't like going thirteen on fifteen? What's the uh, well, it makes them uncomfortable, mate. Uh, you know, they've got to work things out all the time. Who's off? The, we don't tell them who's off the field. They've got to work it out. They've got 30 seconds to work it out, come out with a plan. Yeah, because players like a, a, a sense of comfortability. Um, and when you put them in that uncomfortable zone enough, uh, that becomes a normal form. And that's what we want. And, and I think... The, the most positive thing for me watching this England side of Valve over the period of time is that we've got better at that. We're still not as good as we, we, we want to be, but we've got a lot better in that area. Yeah, I would agree. And actually, one of the things that South Africa did really well was prevent you playing that game. They actually they had medics coming on before people were down injured. They broke the game up. They, um, they did that pretty well. What, um, what other stuff do you think you've kind of brought to the... English game over the last few years. I've definitely noticed that. So some of the more instructive parts of the game are players are getting more comfortable in. What other stuff do you think you've added? Yeah, no, I think uh, that's been an evolution of our game that, you know, originally when I started coaching, they liked to have a lot of structure, liked everything to be organised, which is great when the game's going your way. When the game's not going your way, you've got to be able to adapt to it. And increasingly, I see in all sports now this phenomenon of, uh, of momentum, um, and you see it all the time. A side starts really well; they they uh, accumulate a number of points, and everything's going swimmingly. And then something changes, and then the other team gets momentum. And if they're they're a good team, then they accumulate more points than the opposition, who had been on top. And the, and the opposition, who now have a, a dislocated expectation, they thought everything was going well. They struggled to to work out what to do and to get back in the game. And you see, you know, in Test match rugby, if you were 15 points ahead, you never lost a game. Now, increasingly, we see sides have 15 point leads, and that, and that's nothing now. Yeah, we see that all the time. Um, and that's that's a really big change in the game. You see it in cricket. You know, the Ashes. Uh, Australia's on top in what was it, the fourth test. Stakes comes in, plays plays sensible, then all of a sudden plays three or four shots, and you see Lyons is what taking 350 test wickets, loses stuff. You know, it's it's incredible. Um, you see these massive momentum swings in in games now. And I see it more and more in sport, and to me, it's it's again about. Um, the generation of players we have now that they've gone through and, and they've generally had pretty good settled um, uh, education in the game. Yeah, everyone now generally in the game goes from uh, a nice school to an academy where everything's pretty well organised and then into a professional team where everything's organised. There's less players who have had to fight their way, way through and that's, again, probably one of the things we've done in selection for England. We've picked players who have had more of a fighting background. I think we've got nice diversity in the team now. Um, so I think there's a couple of things generally in sport and a couple of things we've done specifically with England. Yeah, you would have some edgy players. You would have some players that I think you would, if I was, well, if you were to think of an Eddie Jones coach team, I would think of people like Carl Sinclair and uh, Tom Curry. Those guys must excite you a little bit. And some others. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, 100%. You know, Gen, Sinclair, all from different backgrounds, Curry, Underhill. There's a real eclectic mix of players now, which I think is reflective of, of England society. And I think, you know, diversity does give you strength. And I think we've shown, that's been shown in the team. And I think we've got a, a really good spirit within the team now. The boys love playing for each other. And the thing that I've noticed about the team is that now the boys have a greater commitment to the team. I think a lot of times before it was, it was more about playing for England. But now I think they've got a real desire to want to, want to be the best team in the world. Yeah. I, you know, one of the things Kaz told me that uh, he, he noticed as well was, and, and maybe you could shed some more light on it, you, there was definitely some increased cohesion in the build-up to the World Cup. And I think you had, I think it was a lady from hockey come in and actually support you guys a little bit with that. Would that be... Am I making yeah. this? No, no, no. Kaz is probably at home now having a few long necks, mate. Uh, <laughs> he's, a, he's, a, he's a champion. Uh, uh, he's a great, great uh, person on our staff. But, uh, yeah, no. After the Scotland game, mate, in 2019, where we led 38-31-3, I think, at halftime, 31-7 at halftime, and we fell apart in the second half, it just set off uh, set of warning lights that, we weren't as cohesive as we thought we were. Um, and so I went, it was this period of time, I went down to Australia again um, and met up with Rick Charlesworth. Um, and if you haven't read his books, for any coach out there, read them. Uh, he's probably the most, one of the most successful sports people, one of the most successful people in the world. You know, as a guy, I think he won two Olympic golds as a player in hockey, won two Olympic golds as a coach. Was a, is a qualified doctor, sat in parliament in uh, Australian government. Yeah, he's a very accomplished person. Um, and he'd been through this thing with, with the previous hockey team. So Neil Craig, who's with us as uh, our high performance leader organised for Steve Borthwick and I to spend the day with Rick Charlesworth. And it was the best coaching day I've had in my life. Um, he had more questions than answers, uh, which is an indicative of, of a curious mind, which again, I think is the, one of the most important things and you've definitely got a rusty as a coach, that a curious mind and not to think you've got all the answers, that there's better answers out there. And we sat down with him for a day. He, again, he asked us more questions, but he brought forward a name, Corinne Reid, who was the sports psychologist with the Australian women's hockey and then the Australian men's hockey. And she was about, she was an expert in detonating grenades. Um, so old wounds that you, old mental wounds that you hold back. And she did about three or four sessions with the staff and then about two or three sessions with the team. And I've never seen a woman or a person, sorry, who can come in a room and assess the, the relationships within the room. Um, she was able within two sessions with our squad to delve down deep into wounds that were still there from the 2015 World Cup that had never been never been cleaned that were still infecting the team and and through that we had a period of, of massive incohesion um, it looked at one stage in Italy as though our World Cup preparation was going to blow up completely players were fighting because all these wounds were open and they didn't know how to handle it. but from that the, the, the wounds got cleaned the infections got sorted out and from there, we were able to put in places. We were able to work much more on being a cohesive and together team. And it was a great lesson. 
again in in being curious and in be and being humble, uh, knowing that you'd made some mistakes and knowing that you had to fix them. Nice. What uh, I think a lot of teams forget that. I mean, cohesion of the staff is critical. So I would see lots of teams where one or two people are making it pretty um, unhelpful for everyone else. What um, and, and, and so clearly you've now got a, some new coaches coming in and some coaches that have left. Uh, I would have noticed that Scott Wisemantle would be a very good kind of glue within a team unit. And you've got some people coming in, Simon and, uh, and others and Steve leaving. What's, what's the plan around that? Have you spent a bit of time, again, kind of looking at that and trying to become more cohesive quicker? Yeah, well, I think, um, you know, your coaching team and, and the and pertains to anyone who's coaching out there. You know, you like to have a coaching team of one, which, you know, we've all done as a club coach in our careers. Or you might have a coaching team of two or three. But that team, how close they work together is just as important as, as the team. Um, and it takes time. You know, we had a, a coaching staff at the last World Cup. It took us four years to be at our absolute best. Uh, went through some problems, went through some issues. We had a really good team, and, that, and you know the point you made. Scott Wiseman was one of those guys. He's a real glue coach, kept people nice. together, sense of humour, nuts. Um, at times, culturally inappropriate, but uh, <laughs> you know, just a great person to have on staff. And and Neil Hatley was a bit the same. Good glue coach, kept people together. Uh, uh, we're just spending time just just working out issues. You know, the Six Nations was difficult for us because we didn't have any preparation time, but we got through that, I thought, pretty well. Um, and now's the time where, particularly um, with what's going on at the moment, virtual virtual uh, relationship sessions are happening all the time. <laughs> nice. And how's your... Uh... I was, I'm always interested in how coaches use people apart from coaches, although I would still consider them to be coaches, but how does your kind of S&C guys fit in? So your Tom Tomblesons, how do you use a, a, a Kaz and Joe as the, um, as the analysts? How, and, and maybe uh, how has that evolved for you as a coach? Has it been something you start to use more of or less of? or how, What's that look like? Yeah, well, I think I think the biggest thing, Rust, is that now we consider all those guys to be assistant coaches, and they've just got different roles. Um, uh, evolution of coaching that everyone's got to be concerned being uh, what's the term people use now siloed, um, and and in reality, the more you've got everyone working together for the betterment of the players. And they'll have their own specific areas, but they've got to work more closely together. So we consider all those guys to be assistant coaches. And, you know, Joe Lewis and Kaz Morgan, particularly who in the old terms were analysts, are really assistant coaches specialising in analysts, but they're working so closely with our assistant coaches, particularly in the presentation area, where I think, you know, now your ability to communicate effectively to, to players is, is even more important than it was before. Um, because again, they've got different educational backgrounds, and and that's a continued thing that you have to work very hard on to improve. 
Yeah, Kaz would, uh, Kaz would say he's often, and it's credit to the coaches, the coaches are often asking him for feedback on their presentation skills. So he'd be pretty, uh, he'd be pretty aware of that stuff. He'd be pretty excited about learning. Who, who challenges Eddie Jones, apart from your wife? Who, uh, who challenges uh, Well, I think, I think what, there's no one person, but I think the big thing is as you accumulate some experience in coaching, you understand whether you're doing a good job or not. And I think the, the challenge comes from the feedback from the game and the feedback from the performance of your coaches. For instance, if you have a coaches meeting and people, people aren't engaged, then the problem's not the people, the problem's yourself. Um, and you've got to find a way to engage those people better. Um, so I think I've been a lot better at challenging myself. Uh, obviously, been married to my wife for 28 years, so that's a, she's, she's very challenging. She makes sure I keep my feet on the ground. Um, and then I'm lucky I've got people like, like Neil Craig, who's, you know, works in, uh, as the head of our high performance, a coach of great experiences. We sit down every morning coffee at 7, 7.30 and talk about what happened the previous day, review what could we have done better. And then Frank Dick, who's uh, a doyen of coaching, years of experience in athletics, tennis, gymnastics, everything, every sport, uh, comes in periodically, um, has a look at what we do and, and gives feedback. And then I just go out and try to find people who are better coaches than me, mate. And, yeah, um, and, you spoke a bit about Guardiola, someone... I think you said you were embarrassed when you watched Guardiola coach. Why? What did you see, and and what have you changed as a result of it? Uh, well, the big the big thing for me watching him was the intensity that he coached from. And I'd I'd gone through a period when I was a young coach. I was I was very intense, um, very hard on the players, and had a had a period where I didn't do so well, and, and sort of changed and became a tried to find a, a balance to my coaching. But what I'd realised was that things haven't changed in coaching. But what, sorry, things have changed but haven't changed. So when you're on the field, the standard that you want and the standard that you need, you need to coach with intensity to get that. Now, how you, how you get that intensity, uh, it's less, much less by fear these days and more by encouragement. But the coach has got to have an enormous amount of intensity on the field. Because the standards you want on the field, you can't let them slip. The big thing off the field now is, is more about relationships. Like, that's the thing that's changed in coach. That you've got, to, you've got to spend a lot more time driving relationships. Because, again, relationships in the old days used to come a lot more easier because you used to sit around and have a beer together. Um, and that doesn't happen so, so easily now. You have to um set up those situations and, and it's not always with a beer now it's more often than often it's with a coffee and it has to be good coffee not bad coffee so yeah and you have to you have to work much harder at that than you than you used to but i, I think the big change has come that you've got to, the understanding that when you're on the field you've got to drive intensity and i've lost that and i went and watched one of the coach playing munich playing side down the bottom of the table it was two or three degrees. It was flipping freezing, mate, in Munich. And he drove that team for 30 minutes relentlessly. And they came off the field, sweat pouring, and they were happy as Larry. And I asked him afterwards why he coached them so hard. He said, 
because we've got an easy game this week and they need to know how hard they're going to have to work. And it was just a really good reminder of, of the basics of coaching. And you can see that with this team. You know, every time they play, they play with intensity. Um, they play with a desire to want to implement their game model on the opposition. And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. You know, it's worked a lot for the last three years and, and this year it's not working so well. But you can still see he's coaching, coaching well. Yeah, I would. Having seen you coached, I would. I think you come most alive when you're when you're in the middle coaching. You mentioned Neil Craig. He's he fulfills a role in your team that I think most teams should have. So, do you want to kind of? And it's going to sound like he does lots, I imagine. But do you want to give a kind of a brief summary of, you know, what you think the top three or four things are that he brings to the party? Because he's not like a coach, and he's on. As in, in our normal sense of a coach, but he's also, I see lots of performance directors and they don't do what he does as well. Yeah, well, if you just look at Neil's experience, he was involved in Australian cycling, first as a sports scientist, um, and then he went to Adelaide Crows, which is his love AFL. Um, started off as strength and conditioning coach, became assistant coach and was head coach. Um, so he's got a wonderful experience. But I, I brought him in because I wanted someone who could sit back and be objective about the environment. And when I talk about the environment, what I'm talking about is is how we coach, how the players are interacting, how the coaches and players are interacting. So he's almost like an, an environmental um, officer. Um, so he gives me feedback on what I'm doing, gives the coaches feedback. He works very closely with the leadership group. And he's completely uh, neutral, which is important. So the players don't will share a lot of stuff with him because they know he's not involved in selection. He doesn't know a ruck from a wall. He doesn't know a tackle from a, a, a box kick. He's got no idea what's going on in the game. I've he's seen him coaching high ball, though. He coaches high ball a little bit. <laughs> a little bit, yeah. He tries to, mate. He watches games with binoculars, which is one of the greatest fun parts of our coaching. <laughs> but he watches, tries to see the game that he can't see. Um, but he's got this ability to, to... It's almost like he's a temperature checker. Like, what's the temperature of the team today? What do we need to heat up? What do we need to cool down? If I was, if I was a young coach now, in any situation... So, so I was coaching Camberley under 10, right? Um, I'd find the oldest coach in Camberley, uh, go around the bars, maybe the pubs, and find an old coach, hasn't coached for a while, but still loves the game, and ask him to come along every week and have a look at what I'm doing. It wouldn't matter what team I was coaching, I'd find a, a guy. Because you, you find also, mate, and I'm getting to that stage, that the guys who are getting to the end of their career or have finished their career will give you all, all of the things that they've learned because they've got nothing to hide now. Um, and they help you so much. Like, Neil's been so good for us. And he's great for the leadership group, gives them honest, objective feedback. They, they take it because they know he's not involved in selection. They can open up to him a little bit. And he's almost like, yeah, he is. He's a, he's a temperature checker, mate. That's, that's probably the best way. What's the temperature today? What do we need to heat up? What do we need to cool down? Who needs to be heated up? Who needs to be cooled down? Uh, that would sum it up pretty pretty succinctly. Yeah, I think he does that well. I think Richard Hill would do that quite well as well and be quite a good voice for you, would be my guess. 
Yeah, he and his his role is more uh, between the team and the clubs um, because England's got this unique situation. It's been interesting in this uh, coronavirus, having spent th- uh, or I've been in two countries, UK and now Japan. But in Japan, you get all the USA news, the different relationships the prime minister have, and then looking at how teams operate. So in England, you've got the prime minister who runs the whole country. Um, whereas in Japan and, and the USA, they're very much state-based countries. So they've got a governor of each state, and the governor governor runs what happens in each state. The prime minister in Japan and the president sits above like the national coach and tries to give national directives of which the governors can follow or they can't follow. Um, and to try to get cohesiveness in those countries is difficult because you've got a governor who's responsible for his state and he wants everything from the, the national coach but doesn't want to take his advice always sometimes. I just saw that because uh, Trump's going to lock down, said he's going to lock down New York and the, uh, and the person in charge of New York went, that's news to me, I have no idea how you're going to do it. Yeah, so. uh, exactly right. It's, it's really, really interesting. But it, again, you, know, you can see what's happening now. It's a, it's, it's a matter of how, how can we get cohesion? How can we get people to work together? Uh, how can people be disciplined in following orders that are obviously important for, for the, the, the welfare of the society? And, and, and teams, the rugby teams are the same. You know, you've got individual players that want their own thing and you've got to find a way to find some way to make that team cohesive and everyone work together. And, and rugby is the most complex team sports we've got. What would, uh, what would a young Eddie Jones... <clears throat> Uh, what would you say to a young Eddie Jones as a coach? I know you spoke about young coaches coming through. What would be your advice? Uh, first question. Second question, just because something of interest to me, and I'm, I'm seeing lots of it, is, 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 is that any different for ex-players coming through? So clearly lots of ex-players will get accelerated very quickly into positions. So, yeah, what would a, what would a slightly older Eddie Jones say to a slightly younger Eddie Jones? Well, the first thing I'd say is be patient. Um, learn your craft. Learn your craft. Know the game inside out. Uh, know the game from your um, lens, but then make sure you understand the game from other lenses. And what I mean by that, you know, I've been lucky enough as an Australian to coach in South Africa, to coach in Japan, and now coach in the UK. And each of those games in those countries, Australia, has got a different lens. Like in Australia, we want we want to tackle the time. You know, we want, and you saw that with the Wallabies with Michael Chick. They wanted to, that's their way of, of of looking at the game, but that's not how the game needs to be played. Um, South Africa, the opposite. They want the opposition to have the ball. Japan want to be faster and more organised than the opposition. England want to be organised. And within each of those, if you only understand the game from your lens, you'll only ever be, be uh, held to that. And you need to understand the game from different lenses. Because now with England, we're, to me, we're playing a, an attacking game. But we're just attacking the game in a different way. You know, we're, in a lot of ways, we're attacking the game through our defence. And our defence creates attacking opportunities. And our attack creates defence opportunities. Um, and to me, it's a, it's a melding of different styles, but it suits, suits our players really well. 
and so know the game, know your craft, go back, look at your coaching, keep reassessing your coaching, what are you good at, where can you get even better at, at being good at what you're good at, and what areas do you need assistance in. Don't think you have to be great in every area, but make sure you're great in a couple of areas and find other people can, that can help you. So be patient, know your craft, uh, and be humble, mate. Always think there's people who know more than you. And every time you've got a chance to, to speak to anyone, it's an opportunity to learn. Yeah, I mean, pretty cool that Charles was still asking questions. Um, that, would be, uh, that would be a good, uh, a good example of that. What about uh, ex-players coming through? Anything you think differently or same? Uh, well, I think, again, you've got to learn your craft. Just because you've played the game doesn't mean you can coach. Um, yeah, playing and coaching is completely different. Um, coaching is about applying knowledge. It's about, it's about managing players. And as a player, you don't always do that. You know, some players do um, and some players don't. And, and they've got to learn those, those skills. Again, I'd say be patient. Don't be in a rush to get somewhere. You know, because the big thing is, if you're a good coach, you'll always be offered a job. You never have to, you never have to worry about the next job. Um, and you see coaches who are so keen to get up the ladder, where it's just do your job and the next job will come along. And, and, and make sure, again, you know, you're open to new ideas, you're open to learn. What have you been, um, what have been your big challenges? Those, uh, let's talk about, like, um, where have your, your biggest learning moments been as a coach? Uh, well, I think it's, it's always the, the test of a coach. It's like, uh, it's like the teabag theory, mate. You never, you know, you, you see a teabag, you don't know how good the tea's going to be until you put hot water on it. And it's the same with coaching. I think that, that every period where you're under the pump a bit is, is the most important period of coaching because you've got to keep your nerve. You've got to keep believing in certain things that you're doing are right and then be humble enough to say, well, I've made some mistakes. Where can I, where can I uh, go to? Oh, if I can just defer a little bit, we had a, a Port Adelaide coach come in during the Wales week. Um, Port Adelaide's a, a, sm a small team with big ambitions. They won, I think they won one premiership in the AFL and they've come up with a, a unique way of coaching. I think it's a, it's a really good lesson for some young coaches. They've come up with their game model. They cycle through the basics of the game. They've got five or six basics. They cycle through those basics of the game every six weeks. So their, their training program is, 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 a, is about trying to implement the game model. They're not reactive to the game. So if they have a bad loss, they keep coaching. They'll, they'll make certain tactical um, changes, but they won't change drastically. Because what I see with some young coaches, mate, and I know this is sort of a, a, a generalization. BS, yeah, that they they change from week to week. That they see something good at Super Rugby and they say, right, we want to do that, or they something didn't work well on the weekend, so we've got to change that. That if if your game models, you've got a good understanding of your game model, the alterations you have to make are quite slight. Don't be reactive to the game. Be proactive about your game. Be understand what players you've got, what, what sort of game you can play, then, and then try to carve out the strongest game and don't always be reactive to the game. 
you said you've um, coaches have got to also remember the stuff that they believe in. Is there any stuff that you've always believed in that you could look back to a young Eddie Jones? You could go, yeah, that's that's still there. That's that's one of my pillars. Yeah, well, I think the the, the one and only one is made is a coach is always a servant to the players. You got to remember that that your job is to make the player as good as they can and. Again, the game gives you the feedback um, on are you improving that player and are you improving that team. And I think if you, that's always been something I, I've, uh, I learned as a young coach, uh, uh, that you're a servant to the player, that, that if, you, if you keep thinking like that, you know, just because you're the head coach, you're not, you're, you're not the most powerful person in the team. The most powerful people in the team are the players. It's a player's game. Your job is to is to equip the players to play the game, and we can uh, we can debate what I mean by leadership. But so, how are you developing? Give me some ways you're developing leadership because there's you know it's been quite a youngish team. When Lanny left in 2015, there were some young players coming through. You've added some more younger ones. A couple of old fellas left, uh, but generally there's a mid 20s, early to mid 20s. How are you developing leadership in that group? What, actually, two things. So. What do you notice about that group coming through and what do you feel like actually this is their strengths and this is the stuff we've added to add and, and how have you done the leadership stuff? Oh, I think it's, it's probably the most difficult part of the game at the moment is developing leadership because players are educated now to, to be more um, individual and to give to the team is, is something you've got to work really hard to get out of players and, and for players to own. And I think this is, you see it around the world at the moment in, in every different um, sport. And, and I don't think there's any magic solution there, mate. Um, but what we've tried to do is, is allow the players opportunities to fail. I think that's important, that you assign a leadership group and you create opportunities in your week for those players to feel comfortable failing. Because that's when they'll learn. That's when they learn about um, leadership. For example, um, in the World Cup lead at, at Bristol, we put we set up two teams. We put one one team with the strongest pack and the weakest packs, and one team with the weakest pack and the strongest backs. That that team with the weakest pack had every possession coming out of their twenty-two under pressure. And and put out put the 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 backs under enormous pressure to try to find ways to get out of the 22 because they had no forward domination they had to try to manipulate uh, situations and they failed badly at it and it ended up in a bit of a, a free fall um, but it was the greatest lesson because they they had to understand they had to to assess adapt instruct uh, and then encourage the players to do it and and you can talk about all those things in front of a, a screen you can talk about all those things but unless you give them the examples of doing it on the field and failing and then being able to reflect on it you won't develop leadership and to me that's leadership because leadership is again in those difficult situations how do I find a way to influence my teammates to be better yeah, that sounds like my kind of session and I could imagine who was getting frustrated. 
which is cool. <laughs> which is cool. When, when, when you see a young, so a young player comes into an England camp or you go and watch a, a young player playing a game, I know you watch a lot of rugby. What's the, what's the stuff you're going, this is really important to me as a coach. These are the things I'm looking at. Oh, at, a, at a test level, mate, it's toughness, uh, physical toughness and mental toughness. And then we're looking at, does the player have a little bit of an X factor in some area? Is there some area of his game that he can be better than, potentially better than the opposition? He's not always there. Like, you know, Tom Curry, for instance, I remember watching him one game. I said, this kid's got it. Like, he just had this ferocity at the, at the breakdown. He had a bit of a feel for the ball. And you could tell he was going to be a good player. And, and, uh, and then you've got to back your instinct on that, follow through. Uh, what I found is that most of the players in England need 12 months to adapt to the international scene. And you've got to have the patience to, to have that 12 months to, to allow them to have some failure again, um, support them in their failure and, and bring them through. Um, yeah, again, if I look back at the Sixth Nation, one of the things I'm most pleased about is the adaptability of Tom Curry, the guy from a player who's never played number eight. Um, yeah, it was widely criticised after the French game. Yeah, he, he probably felt that criticism, um, but then came through and, and, you know, he can be a great number eight. Now, whether that'll be his position, we don't know. But we know that if we need to, we can play him at number eight and he's got the capacity to do that. Yeah, you must get a fair bit of grief in the press around selection during those times. <clears throat> Did you? Has there ever been a thought of uh, something I was thinking about? So obviously the podcast with Mo Bobat, uh, who works for ECB and they have an independent selector with, with England. Uh, do you think that would ever be a, a model that would fit into rugby or are you, are you trying to have people in the room that challenge you? And I was thinking more actually around the semi-final of the World Cup, like how do those discussions look around selection? Yeah, look, uh, I've operated on the base systems with Australia. We had uh, independent selectors. Um, if you're a New South Wales coach from New South Wales, you had a Queensland independent selector. That's how it worked. If you're a Queensland coach, you had a New South Wales independent selector. Um, and I had two. One was outstanding. Um, a guy called Andrew Slack, who captain Australia. He was absolutely outstanding. Um, it always be throwing things up. Have you thought about that? Um, never wanted to push his selection onto you, but made you think clearly about your selection. I think it, it can be useful, mate. You've got to find the right person because unless that person's with you, with the team all the time, they don't see the bits and pieces a coach does. Like, you know, they don't see the, the player, how they react at dinner time to conversation, how they how they are around the medical room. And, and that's the beauty of being a head coach. You know, you're living with the players. You see where they are. Because sometimes it's a gut feeling on selection. You're not quite sure um, what's right and what's uh, wrong. But you've got a gut feeling because you see that player. But definitely independent selector, I think, uh, is something that's worthwhile. And I've, I've chatted a bit to that Ed Smith who, who does it for the yeah, yeah, England yeah. cricket. There's a... Uh, intriguing character, and I think he's added a lot to the to the English cricket team. I was at uni with Ed Smith. He's definitely an intriguing character. <laughs> I'll give you that. Uh, actually, one of the things you mentioned there is about the transition to the international game. I was thinking a little bit, and actually, Fletcher's doing a podcast uh, this week with Joe Marchant. Um, 
just the benefits of someone like Joe going over and playing some Super Rugby, albeit a, a curtailed season. You've obviously spoken to him, and you've been, you know, what do you see as the as the benefits of that? Uh, again, like we were talking about before, mate, seeing the game through a different lens, opening the eyes up of what the possibilities are. I'm so pleased for Joe March, and I think he's going to come back um, and and be a much better player. And and yeah, the reality is. Um, He's out of his comfort zone. You know, he'd be at Auckland. They'd train in the morning. Mate, there'd be no lunch for him. There'd be no breakfast for him. He'd have to make his own breakfast in the morning, go to training, train. If, he, if they've got a double session, he has to work out how he's going to have his lunch. Yeah, all those things, I'm not saying they're right or wrong, but they make you just have a different perspective. So when he gets back to Harlequins, he goes, there's, there's, there's <laughs> breakfast, there's train, there's lunch. You know, if he wants a meal to take home at night because he can't cook himself, he, he's got that, um, which is great, you know. And there's some things you need to do, but it's great to know that there's another way of doing it. I can remember watching Conrad Smith at Hurricane, you know, a 100 test cap player. They train in the morning and at lunchtime they've got a meeting and he's got his little, um, you know, Tupperware box. You remember you used to have it in year six and your mother put in cheese sandwiches or Vegemite, Marmite sandwiches, whatever it was, and he had that, and he was having his meeting with his own cut lunch. Now, you know, that's a 100-test cap player. And so I'm not saying that's right or wrong, but it's just a different way. And to to be able to experience those those different ways is, is makes you a more adaptable and a more uh, rounded player. And I think Joe will really benefit from that. I'm hoping next time I go, I go and see him if there's if Quinn's, is, he's got a pack lunch. Yeah, have his little Tupperware box, mate. <laughs> I'm not sure he will. I'm not sure he will. What, uh, where do you think the game's going? So, for those, you know, clearly the game evolves. I think it probably, uh, especially post-World Cup, there's, a, there's definitely a bit of evolution goes on and if there's some more law changes. What, um, where do you think the game will, will go in the next kind of couple of years? What are your thoughts? Well, it's a combination, mate, at the moment of NFL and football. So <laughs> you've got your structured possession, three phases, bang, bang, bang. You've got to get on top in three phases. And then you've got the football where you've got these kicking phases where it's completely unstructured and the ability to find formation quickly in either attack and defence and to get, get advantage quickly in three phases is so important. So you you want to you want to create players that are really good at the at, at the structured and really good at the unstructured. And I think your ability to manipulate games to get a slight um, emphasis in either the structured or the unstructured how you want to play the game is going to be crucial. So tactically, I think the game's going to change a lot. Um, a way about the way you can manipulate the game. Um, but the game's becoming a real power game. Um, and I think unless they make changes to the way the game's structured, like a game at Twickenham or the next game at Twickenham, the test match is 110 minutes long. 35 minutes ball in play, 65 minutes ball out of play. So, you know, that's, that's the NFL and that was a lot of time to get ready to play short periods of play. The average ball in play phase is 30 seconds or less. So we've got these power episodes. And then you've got the one episode of three or four minutes that can be a, a crucial episode where you've got the kick, 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 
counter-attack, turnover, and you've got to be able to score quickly over that. So the game's fascinating. Where it's going to go, I'm, I'm not sure. We don't have strong leadership in world rugby at the moment because I think the game needs to become a little bit more continuous because it's just evolving itself now to be a game for big, powerful athletes and the game's always been a charter for, for different sized athletes and, and that's a worrying thing for me. Well, even the fact that a scrum two can average 80 seconds at uh, the World Cup just gives people a bit of respite, doesn't it, for the next... Yeah. Yeah. For the next power episode, what uh, you were talking a bit of there, a little bit about your coaching craft and games. I mean, if if I watched you coach, which I have, what do you think would be the kind of the coaching skills that Eddie Jones would use regularly when he's when he's in the middle of a game coaching? Which, by the way, is when I see you the second happiest, apart from when I see your, you with your dog. Yeah, no, it's uh, and I think Alex Ferguson mentions this a lot. Um, it's observation skills. Uh, coaching's about observing, about, about you, you, you create a session, uh, you've got an idea in your head of what the session is, but by your observation skills, you've got to manipulate the session to what the players need. Um, and what I mean, what they need is not necessarily what they want, but yeah. what they need to prepare for the game. Um, and then that observation skills gives you the ability to coach on the run which I think is so important, that ability to ask the right question of a player, whether that be an open question or be a directed, should you have been doing that? Um, and there's a combination of that, you know, the spectrum of coaching from being directed to being questioning undirected. I think your ability to be able to uh, change in and out of that spectrum is just so important. Yeah, good, good. Mate, I... I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop there. I've got a couple of questions for you. I normally do one-worders. I'm not going to do one-worders. I'm going to ask you uh, some questions. Who's the best player you've ever coached? Who's the player you've enjoyed coaching the most? Uh, I think the best, best player I've ever coached was Fareed Dupree. Um, he just saw the game two rucks ahead of anyone else. Absolutely brilliant player. And I've never seen a guy play a World Cup on such a minimal preparation so brilliantly as he did in 2015. I think he played one game for Suntory in Japan in the previous 12 months before that World Cup. And, like, he was just colossal. Uh, intellectual player, um, brilliant player. The most enjoyable player I coached was Joe Roth. was a complete opposite, absolute rat bag. <laughs> Didn't like to train, liked to have a drink, liked to enjoy himself, but just the most, most intuitive player. Um, yeah, won the Lions series for, for Australia in, what was it, 2005, 2001, was it? Uh, two intercept tries. yeah. Yeah, and could just change a game in, a, in an instant with one breath. Uh, best coaches you've ever watched coaching? Uh, Pep by mile, mate. Absolute uh, standout coach. I think uh, we're lucky in, in the UK. We've got someone like Danny Carey, who I think is an absolutely brilliant coach. Yeah, Danny will enjoy your shout-out. He's a good lad. Uh, Favourite match you've ever coached? Uh, Favourite match is about to come, mate. Next one. I knew you'd say that. Although my son's favourite game is the uh, Japan... Uh, South Africa game that we were at as a spectators. Um, yeah, I think that was good because it was a bit of a game changer for, 
for World Rugby and a game changer for for the what do they call it the the structure of World Rugby. And now we've got a country in Asia who's a top eight country in the world, which is fantastic. Yeah, I love the way they play. They're doing some pretty exciting stuff. Uh, just to get for me to get into Eddie Jones's head, what's your favourite movie? Uh, favourite movie uh, is this Japanese animation called What's the Spotty Spirited Away. Um, it's about uh, this family that goes to this uh, town. It's all about how, and it's, it's quite topical today. It's how you look after the environment, and if you abuse the environment, it turns on you. Uh, it's a beautiful story. Oh, it's wow. the only movie I've stayed awake for. <laughs> nice. Um, last thing, w w if you were going to point uh, coaches towards any kind of books, resources, stuff that y you've found useful over the years, clearly getting other people in, hanging in other people's environments is, is key as well. But any stuff, any books, as well as the Rick Charlesworth stuff? Uh, the three books I always keep on my on my desk and refer back to them all the time is one, the Bill Walsh, I think it's called Winning Edge. It's like the textbook of coaching. It's a manual of coaching. If you're any aspiring coach, I don't think you can buy it now, um, but I'm sure you can get excerpts. Uh, the second one is a, is a more uh, story-like coaching, but it, it tells you how you evolve a team. It's Phil Riley's uh, Winners Within, I think it's called. It's a brilliant book, absolutely brilliant. And the third one's... Uh, by Anson Dorrance, um, The Champion's Mind. Again, uh, uh, just a brilliant summary of how you, how you can be a good coach. Eddie Jones, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. I really appreciate you giving your time so early on a Sunday morning in Japan and hope you guys stay safe and well. Um, and I'm sure I will uh, have the pleasure of seeing you at Penny Hill again uh, in the near future. All right, good on you, Rusty. Good to catch Thanks, up, mate. mate. You're doing, awesome. doing a great job with the podcast. Good on you, mate. Cheers. Cool. Enjoy the rest of your day. Cheers, mate. See you, mate. Cheers.